You're listening to a Burnt Toast production. There is one cat too many. Nero has checked the list more times than he feels necessary, but there it is, a small ginger kitten with designs on his upholstery. He watches it test its hypodermic claws in the rear view and considers finding a bridge and a hessian bag. Deciding he lacks the necessary murderous streak, he doubles back and knocks on the same doors he knocked on earlier in the evening. Everyone who answers is either puzzled or worried to see him back, no more so than the septuagenarian who is already cradling a more or less identical kitten to her bosom. She looks at the cat Nero is offering with a kind of bewilderment that gives way to longing and, as he walks away holding the thing by the scruff of its neck, a strange kind of regret. Someone has lost count and, from experience, Nero knows who to blame. In the 18 months they have worked together, Kilby has demonstrated a rare knack for disaster. More than that, it is a talent that he has proved willing to work on, honing an innate aptitude into a world-class skill. The problem, as Nero sees it, is that Kilby is too in love with his own cleverness and too lazy to bother about consequence. He is seduced by ideas and intolerant of practicalities, and this is Nero's fault, because here Nero is again getting practical on his partner's behalf. That's okay, because he is almost done. One day soon he will waltz into a quiet pawn shop off Tottenham Court Road where there is a second-hand passport with his name on it. Off he will go into a quiet life of TV, bank holidays and drinks on Friday where nobody will ever find him again. That is where he belongs, or will belong. Walking back to the cab, he thinks about A, letting the kitten fend for itself in the darkness of Battersea Park, B, chucking it into the boot to spare the seat covers, and C, naming it Anisha. He's not sure where the name has come from, but it feels significant in a way somebody else will need to explain to him. Perhaps the name is from a memory. Perhaps that memory was his. Choosing the third option and sneezing four times, he again worries that he really isn't cut out for a life of crime. As Nero closes the back door, having first laid down his coat across the rear seat and waited for Anisha to snuggle in, he feels a sharp rap on his right shoulder. On turning, he sees nothing but jagged electrics as someone punches him hard between the eyes. He collapses to the ground and is dragged across the tarmac to a waiting car. The world remains in darkness. He hears a car door slam and feels a familiar tremble and roll as the vehicle takes off with him on the back seat. Pulling a handkerchief from a trouser pocket to cradle his nose, he sits up, checks out the interior. A 1950s Black Austin A40 Somerset Saloon, all cool walnut and warm leather. He wonders how he knows this. There is a nun on the seat next to him, and two more in the front. Full habits in black serge, heavy rosaries, winged white coifs that wouldn't have looked out of place clinging to a crag on a coastal cliff. It is at this point that Nero becomes very, very scared. The nun in the passenger seat speaks. She makes no concession at turning around. The voice is precise and polished, like a lesser royal. Her dark eyes, bracketed with four decades of baggage, glare at Nero in the rear view. Am I to take it you were not expecting us, Mr. Dusk? 
Nero looks at the nun on the seat beside him, young, fat, and grinning at him with some private, almost lusty excitement, eager sausage fingers grappling at the handle of the carpet bag on her broad lap, eyes wide, unblinking. An expression of Kilby's comes to Nero, unbidden. The woman is short of several hinges. Uh, not today, he says. But you know who we are. Nero knows exactly who they are. There are nursery rhymes about these nuns. They were the bogey women your parents spoke about when you stopped fearing the meatsmiths. Nero never had parents, not that he knows about, but he still knows about the Sisters of the Dark. A lost order that turned from the light to worship the shadows. These were women you didn't want learning your name. Nero is trained in the art of spotting trouble. There are the big talkers, solid muscle from sole to scalp, Amateurs, one good shove and they'd be on the cobbles. More frightening are the silent ones with nothing to prove. The professionals. They mean work, skill, blood and sweat. But the ones that scare Nero most are the nutters. There is no rhythm to their violence, no code, no warning signs, no limits. They will have your kidneys out before you knew the fight had started. Right now, Nero fears for his kidneys and his liver. And all his tomorrows, all his yesterdays come to that. He sniffs, dabs the back of his hand against the tip of his nose, and smears a bright drop of blood. With his handkerchief, he wipes his hand clean. He takes his time. This about the church cat. The eyes in the rear view are steady, even as the car rattles and jars around them. They are the still centre of everything, and Nero can't quite look away from them. Long moments pass. You hear that, my sisters? A shining example of native cockney wit. A shining wit indeed. The driver, a small, withered thing in her eighties, peering at the road through thick beer-bottle spectacles, and the sausage-fingered girl, laugh mechanically, for ten seconds, until the passenger snaps her fingers. As an order, we appreciate humour. We appreciate irreverence. We too laugh in the face of what is right and proper. We did not make the rules that make the world, and we do not observe them. Their right is our wrong, so we respect your subversion, even if we cannot tolerate it. Sister Aphasia? She clicks her fingers again, and, grinning, the sausage-fingered girl punches Nero in the ear. His head rocks and rings. The car swims around him. Everything swims except those eyes in the rear view. They hold him like gravity. As Mother Superior, I require your respect. More than that, I require your terror. Our order thrives on the fear of unbelievers, a tradition I have always striven to maintain. Are you scared yet, Mr. Dusk? I'm always scared, Nero says. This is more true than he wants to think about. Quite right, too. Your companion, or should I say, business partner? Do you know where he is? Not especially. He is about to come into possession of something of ours. We want it back. More than that, we demand it back. We should talk to him. That would be impolitic. Come again. Your partner has a lineage that we cannot risk tangling with. All three of the nuns cross themselves to a silent prayer. You, on the other hand, are a blank slate. No name, no past, no future, no story at all. How much do you remember of what you were? 
Nero feels his cheeks burn. Enough, he says. I doubt it. The sisters specialize in stories, Mr. Dusk. All the stories that never happened. The books that were never written. The maps that were never drawn. We take the dark and we make it word. Ink on vellum. For religious purposes only. Nero has heard of the sisters' stories. The power of their dark word. They don't just worship the dark, but employ it. Capturing it in ink to craft books and maps out of pure untime. Maps that show all the bits the real maps leave off. Undoing spells and poems. Books that could rewrite your life or shred your soul with a single sentence. He has heard stories, everyone has, of a Christmas gift of a pocketbook that turned a man into his own shadow. The Mother Superior continues, We can tolerate a certain amount of curiosity in our relics. What we can't tolerate is greedy little tea leaves like you and your partner deciding to make money from them. Are you understanding me? Wouldn't hurt you to spell it out. Our maps detail manners even a guide like you couldn't find without help. One of our maps is missing, Mr. Dusk. Your friend has it, or will soon enough, and we are relying on you to return it. What map? That is none of your concern. Allow me to be very specific about the limits of your concern. She clicks her fingers again, and Nero watches as Sister Aphasia opens her carpet bag. Her movements are slow, heavy with anticipation, delicious. She removes a black feather quill and a small, stoppered file of even blacker ink. She grins, and all Nero can think about is how neat and round her teeth are, a tight array of perfect pebbles. He tries to think of something else, but realizes he can't. Something has a tight grip on his mind, refusing to let it wander. He tries thinking that maybe he should jump from the car, but that grip tightens into an ice cream headache. The same thing happens when he tries to think about fighting off Sister Aphasia as she shoves up his right coat sleeve, unlinks his shirt cuff, and rolls it to the elbow. His thoughts keep returning to those teeth. The Mother Superior is murmuring a prayer in the passenger seat, fingering the onyx bubbles of her rosary. He can't think about that either. Sister Aphasia lifts her quill above the bare belly of his arm. Nero feels the nib bite his skin and drag in a circle. The pain is sharp and hot. Three more scotch strokes and a knee lifts from the small of his spine. His arm is dropped. Mother Superior puts away her rosary. Those are your limits, Mr. Dusk. All the time you have. Yours is a very small candle. It would be the work of a moment for us to snuff it. Heavy with humiliated rage, Nero barely notices as the diminutive driver presses a button on the walnut dash and the door beside him swings open. Aphasia lurches, giggling, to give him a vicious shove. He feels the smack of cold air short seconds before the smack of the pavement on his shoulder. He rolls and clatters and is washed up against the iron railings of Battersea Park, a good two feet from where he was snatched. He sits up, breathing hard, tears hot on his cheeks. He pulls up his sleeve. The tattoo is black ink with a sore pink halo, a crude clock face with hands three quarters to midnight, a doomsday clock. As he watches, the second hand twitches and itches forward. He waits, watching for more, but it stays put. He isn't sure what happens at midnight, but guesses it will be nothing good. 
From his pocket, he tugs his paisley handkerchief, which he ties as a makeshift bandage. This is Kilby's trouble. It is always Kilby's trouble. The sisters are too scared of Kilby's friends in high places, although Nero knows those friends are far from friendly, so they have reached a compromise. As long as Nero knows Kilby, Nero will always be compromised. This is it. The last time his soul is waiting. He almost believes it. There is a red phone box on the corner. Nero pulls himself up the fence, limps along the pavement, finds 50p, and makes a call. You have one new message, a robot tells him. He listens, checks the watch on his right wrist, and puts down the receiver. Anisha is mewling from the back seat as he closes the driver's door behind him. She might almost be concerned. More likely, hungry. How did I end up responsible for you? He wonders. He doesn't wonder. He knows. The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk Book One, How to Disappear Completely Written and performed by Mike Bartlett Episode 10 London is waking up to winter darkness. At Westminster Station, neon strips flicker in a pale ceiling. A light is on in the ticket window and a guard waits at the gate. Breathless and one-handed, Theo fumbles her oyster card and sends her purse skidding across the tiles. Kilby has no card. Sorry, sir. Seeing Kilby about to vault the gates, the guard, a large Sikh, possibly a weightlifter, plants a firm palm on Kilby's shirt front. You can buy a ticket at the window. He gives Kilby a flat smile, promising trouble. Bouncing with adrenaline, Kilby raises his chin, ready for a fight. Jones, he says, buy me a ticket. The absurd juxtaposition of peril and protocol dizzies her. You're not serious. But already she is riffling for change, filling Kilby's palm with coins and guiding him to the machine. As he argues with the screen, she glances back to the street. Her chest tightens. The butchers are striding down the middle of the road, implacable and determined. Who are they? Kilby is distracted by the screen glare. Uh, Sumo and Longstocking. Who? Longstocking. Uh, Red pigtails? Swedish? You have red books. Seem to suit her. Sumo should be obvious. He is bothered to name them, she realises. What other power do you have over a killer? Yes, them. Meatsmiths. Butchers from a manor near Smithfield. Hacked their souls a millennia ago. They live forever, but bits keep dropping off. They're in constant pain, which doesn't help their disposition. What do they want? Money. They've lived long enough to know there's nothing else worth living for. A train is due in one minute. Circle line towards Tower Hill. Kilby slams the butt of his right hand against the machine. I've been polite. Give me a ticket, damn it! Theo is still watching the pair. I don't have any money. Oh, you mean what do they want with you? Oh, they want to kill you, Jones. That's what they're being paid for. Sorry, I thought that was obvious. There is a hiss of brakes from the platform below. There's neon pallor on the butcher's cheeks. That box, Theo says. You know what it is? No idea, but it seems very important to them, which makes me think it might also be very expensive. 
So expensive they'll kill us for it. Oh, no, so expensive they'll kill us for knowing anything about it. The ticket machine scratches and retches and spits out a ticket. Kilby snatches it up and shoves it into the gate. Theo swipes her card and breaks into a sprint. Two flights of stairs lead down to the platform. Halfway down, Theo hears screaming. The weightlifter on the gate, she thinks. She doesn't turn back. The train is beeping a warning. The doors are closing. On the second flight of stairs, Kilby treads on his coat and stumbles. He grabs at the balustrade and misses, ending up sprawled on the platform. Ahead of him, Theo turns back and wonders if she should. This is life or death, isn't it? The doors close. The train is leaving without them. Theo looks to the top of the stairs, where the meatsmiths glare down. Even now, she is looking for an escape. Brakes hiss. There is more beeping. The driver has seen Kilby's accident. In a rare act of cosmic kindness, the doors open. Theo grabs Kilby's elbow and bundles him onto the train. They collapse against each other on the carriage floor. That's it, Theo thinks. We're safe. We have to be safe. By the door at the far end of the carriage, something falls to the platform, heavy and graceless. At first, Theo thinks the meatsmiths have thrown a body over the railings. Then the body stands. The man, Sumo, has dropped 30 feet and landed in his boots. He walks stiffly as if put together by a hobbyist, but he walks. He walks straight through the carriage doors as they close and the train pulls out from the station. In the windows, only darkness. Theo doesn't panic. She's beyond fear, as someone with hypothermia is beyond cold. She only looks for a way out. She and Kilby draw themselves upright and shuffle down the aisle towards the front of the train. Sumo follows, his vast belly brushing left and right against the handrails, his mangled right foot dragging. Two minutes to Tower Hill Station. They might lose him there, if they can survive that long. A suited man stands in the aisle with his back to the butcher, deafened by his large white headphones. He doesn't shift as Sumo approaches. He knows nothing until a carving knife pierces his navel from behind. The passengers who have watched this scene with detached disapproval now find their voices. They gasp and whimper and pull in their knees. One is brave enough to jump for the emergency brake. Theo calls too late. No! The train jolts to a sudden halt, throwing her to the floor. Kilby too. There is still darkness in the windows. They are not going to make Tower Hill. Reaching the end of the carriage, Kilby finds the door locked. He rattles the handle with increasing fury. Theo hears footsteps behind them, a distinctive drop and drag. She wills herself to turn. She can smell formaldehyde, rancid blood, and the low, greasy notes of uncooked meat. Sumo, the meatsmith, is there, just there, standing above her. Expressionless, not even pleased, like he belongs there. Naming him will do no good. He lifts his knife. Theo closes her eyes. Nothing. Theo opens her eyes. The meatsmith is frozen with his arm upright, as if posing for a still life. His blade is hooked in the plastic casing of the ceiling light. Trapped. As he yanks it free, the light sparks and goes out. Now Theo is ready. She jumps back against Kilby, who catches her by the armpits. The meatsmith steps forward to swing at her, and Kilby throws Theo at him. She isn't sure if Kilby is throwing her clear or using her as a shield. She barrels into her attacker's solid gut, and the knife misses. Kilby 
isn't so lucky. He darts right, hoping to squeeze past, and the blade slashes his left side, shearing through his coat. The box is released from its pocket and drops with a crack to the carpet, where it bounces and tumbles, coming to rest against Theo's toes. The meatsmith hoists Kilby aloft by his shirt front, shoving him against the door. Kilby yelps, his boots treading air, a blade level with his chin. Okay, he says. So, I'm ready to negotiate. Theo realizes she can't watch Kilby die, no matter what she thinks of him. She looks about for a weapon, but all she has is the jar in her right hand. There isn't time to think. She rushes forward, heaves the jar up, and smashes it down on the back of the killer's head. There is a blinding flash of light, a cold explosion that makes Theo stagger back, blinking. Glass glitters on her palm. The meatsmith jerks, throwing Kilby clear. The light, the same effervescent light that was trapped behind glass, now clings to the meatsmith. Blinking and blinded, he attempts to brush away its shimmering tendrils. It seems to expand, coruscating around his thick legs, prodding at nostril, ear holes and eyes as if trying to find a way in. The world shakes. A violent quake that runs through everything, every atom, every molecule. Twice as violent as that which shook Josh's office. Something is broken. When the quake stops, there is a moment's stillness, a quiet breath, and then the train shudders. For a hopeful moment, Theo thinks they might be moving. Instead, the overhead lights blink and splutter. The glow in the neon tubes dims. Darkness rises, but it does more than that. It moves. Darkness crawls along the carriage walls. It seems as if the train is sinking into shadow. Theo thinks it is a trick of the light. It isn't. A trick of the dark, maybe. The shadows move faster than the light fades. She watches a shaving cream advertisement slide from view above the windows. A map of the circle line is swallowed by impatient darkness. Sloane Square, Victoria, St. James Park, Westminster, until Liverpool Street is blacked out. Beside her, holding a bloodied hand to his wounded coat, Kilby watches the encroaching darkness. His face is pale, his hands shaking. You really shouldn't have done that. Theo isn't too dazed for outrage. I just saved your life? Not yet. What was in that jar? Time. A whole life's worth. Back in the cab, you said soul. Soul, passport, supper. Take your pick. Josh's soul? The truth passes over Kilby like a slow cloud. She sees him consider whether to share it. I did say you shouldn't have done that. Hold this. Kilby passes Theo the box. She barely notices. She has the feeling someone is moving behind her, but there is nobody there. Just a shadow. No, not just a shadow. Shadows. They're moving. The shadows are moving. Dark nothing crawls out from under seats and through the glass. The carriage crowds with inky, shapeless ghosts. They climb ceilings, crawl the floor, and drift along the aisle. They slip in and out of cracks, peeling from the carriage walls. A phalanx of shadow begins to circle the meatsmith, who still scrapes at the light enveloping him. What are they? Kilby speaks quickly, still only watching the darkness. The dark lives on the outside of history until someone cracks it open. Someone like you. Right now, it's hungry. Sorry. This apology is directed at the startled man by the nearest door, whose umbrella Kilby has just stolen. Theo finds it impossible to look at the darkness directly, 
Her eyes want to look somewhere else as if aware it can't really be there. This is nothing, this is emptiness. A shadow moves past her without breath, without heat, without any symptoms of substance. The meatsmith has backed himself against the door at the edge of the carriage, his scarred and ill-matched hands raised against the gathering darkness. Too late. There is a rush and a swoop and the shadows thicken around him. In seconds, he is dust. A few seconds more, and he isn't even that. Theo stares in horror and can't remember why. There is nothing left to see, and maybe there never was. Whatever you do, Kilby says, don't drop that box. He raises the umbrella like a spear and drives it through the glass window on the emergency door release. The doors sigh. In one motion, he uses the umbrella to wedge them open, grabbing the hood of Theo's coat with his free hand and pulling them both out. Everything is motion and panic. A torrent of darkness gushes through the train. Shadows swerve towards Theo, but she is rushing somewhere else, falling into the oily warmth of the tunnel. She lands blindly and badly on Kilby, who snatches her left hand and yanks her upright. They run beside the track, stumbling over stone and cable. Behind them, screams. The train shakes. Theo's work shoes snag and her hand slips from Kilby's sweaty palm. She fumbles the box and almost drops it. For an awful moment, she is sure she's about to tumble forwards and electrocute herself on the live rail. Flinching backwards in an attempt to counterbalance, she thumps against the tunnel wall, cracking the back of her head. Sparks fly, but she blinks them away, trying to focus on the darkness and surprised to realize she can see Kilby peering down at her with concern. There is light. He looks up, back down the tunnel, into this new glare. The train is still there, 20 meters down the track. It is no longer shaking. There are no screams. Light has returned to the windows, but there is nothing and no one to show. Each carriage is silent and deserted. Neither of them has anything to say about that. You've been listening to The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk, Book One. How to Disappear Completely. Written and performed by Mike Bartlett. If you'd like to find out more about this podcast, check out salmonandusk.com. You've been listening to a Burnt Toast production.